listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. It's Alex Schmitter here. I am the producer of the Hulu original documentary, Changing the Game. You might know me for that documentary and or the Netflix original documentary, Disclosure, and or my work at GLAAD as the associate director of transgender representation there. Um, I am continuing to work on enhancing representation for transgender people in media and looking into getting into the narrative space. So you can find me doing that. Uh, and I'm just so excited to be here with Bonsai Creative to have this conversation. Alex Schmitter, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It is my pleasure. We're excited to have you on the Make It Podcast. And let me just start. And normally I would start out and read your bio uh, but I want to start just by thanking you for making the film's disclosure and your part in making the film's disclosure and changing the game. I viewed myself as someone that is cultured. Uh, I'm biracial. My background is multinational. Um, my business mentor is gay, a gay man. I, I viewed myself as not the target audience for these films. And yet I watched them and found myself uh, learning. I found myself understanding things I didn't understand before in that I did need to watch these films. And I put myself in a place that I, that I hadn't quite earned yet. And so thank you for making these films and making them and like I said, your part in making them and making them accessible to everybody. I really appreciate that, Chris. And I think that that's the goal with all of my work and all of my filmmaking. You know, I grew up in Orange County, California, where I didn't know people like me. Um, and so when I looked to the media and I didn't really see anything that resembled or related to my experience, I think that set me on a path to want to be a storyteller so that I, I could expedite the education and empathy that we need for people who are different from us. And I think so many of us don't know what we don't know. And that's how I grew up with a lot of people that didn't know myself not knowing. And so I'm so glad that you found the films uh, to be accessible and affecting for what they are, because I think all human stories, you know, we can relate to on some level if, if we see the humanity in them. Amen to that. And I want to give the audience a little bit more background and you let them know who you are. So I'm going to read from your bio. And like I always say, it is the internet. So if anything's incorrect, feel free to correct me and, uh, and we'll, 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 we'll note it as a footnote. Boom. Let's get that corrected. But I'll start here and, and read from it. 
Alex Schmitter is the Associate Director of Transgender Representation at GLAAD, where he serves as an expert educator, consultant, and advisor to Hollywood and entertainment entities about how to approach LGBTQ and specifically transgender storytelling. Before joining GLAAD in 2016, he worked as the communications coordinator at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, where he became a recognized media spokesman. Alex went on to work for Grindr, where he managed digital talent and produced video and editorial content for its award-winning digital publication, N2. Alex was selected as one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for media in 2017, and the same year received the Visibility Award for Los Angeles Pride. Alex has independently produced the feature documentary films Dis Disclosure, that you can watch on Netflix, and Changing the Game, which you can watch on Hulu. He advises on television, film, music, tech, corporate projects that champion diversity, inclusion, and authenticity in LGBTQ representation and storytelling. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Tufts University in 2013 with a minor in media and communications concentrating on the effects of media representation and consumer behaviors on identity and interpersonal relationship. And you currently live in Los Angeles. And I'd love to start with your film disclosure that we've talked about. Uh, in the film, the interviewees all mentioned a film that impacted them directly in their trans journey. What film was that for you? Wow, thank you for that bio, Chris. I didn't know all of that about myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I always mention how I got into this work, uh, which is that when I was a young gender nonconforming kid growing up in Orange County, California, the first film that I did see that I could see myself in was Boys Don't Cry, which if you've seen that film, which is about the real-life trans man, Brandon Tina, who is violently killed upon people finding out his gender history, that was the only thing I saw of myself. And if you can imagine what it's like for a kid to grow up and be seeking and searching for some indication that they can be and live in the world, and that is the only thing they see. Uh, it doesn't provide much hope or possibility for the future. So that delayed my own coming into myself for about 10 years. And so that film holds a lot of complicated emotions for me because I, on one hand, it showed me I can be and there are other people like me. And on the other, it showed me the worst possible outcome of accepting myself. And so that put me on this path of trying to figure out who I was, who I could be, and hopefully helping other people seeing a more expansive view of what's possible and, and hopefully helping people's imaginations in those formative years of, of you know, how you want to become and be in the world that I, that, that film just holds a lot of weight for me. Um, yeah, it was mentioned a few times by uh, a variety of the interviewees. And I think Laverne Cox specifically said that she watched the film and thought, well, oh, I'm going to get killed. 
Like, yeah. Like, so it was this beautiful movie, and I'd, I'd watched it before researching, preparing for this, this interview. Uh, I'm just a fan of Hilary Swank, and I'm a fan of great stories or whatever. But you're right. It's like it, it tells a story that, that needs to be told, but then it, it also has an ending that has a chilling effect. Mm-hmm. For for those you know in that in, in the community, uh, the trans community, uh, so I appreciate that. Um, I want to start with your filmmaking chops a little bit, and and uh, you know you started at NYU, which is a great filmmaking school. We've interviewed so many people on this podcast that have gone to NYU or Yale. RUSC, but you moved out and went to Tufts. So what, what motivated the move? Cause I, I assume uh-huh. you wanted to be in, in film or you, or you had an idea that you wanted to tell stories. Maybe you didn't. I, I knew that I wanted to, but I didn't know if I could. And I didn't get into Tish. I don't think, uh, yeah, I think I applied. I did not get into Tish. Oh, got it. Um, so I was at NYU studying psychology, which is what I ended up majoring in it Tufts as well. But the reason for my move from NYU to Tufts was largely because I realized that the school was probably too big for what I wanted. I really wanted close, collaborative classroom environments where we were having dialogues. And I just found myself being in classrooms with hundreds of other students, not having those interpersonal connections. And so that's why I made the move. Um, and I, at the time, again, I didn't know I could be a filmmaker. I was still finding myself mm-hmm. and sort of clinging to whatever I could that was related to media, which is why I really did focus on media and communications in college, even though it's a minor on my degree. It's really what I put a lot of investment and time into. My thesis was actually all about my anxiety about the proliferation of content on varied platforms because at the time Netflix and Hulu like were only really starting and people were only figuring out what those were and I had and do have a real concern that as there's more content as there's more places to find that content we're not sharing in any kind of temporal or spatial or social experience together I mean I watched the West Wing during quarantine, not when everyone else was watching The West Wing. And I I feel like I could have had such a richer experience watching that show while it was on TV. And I think we don't have that as much anymore um, outside of The Bachelorette, which I unfortunately have to admit I watch. Uh, so anyway, to your point, when I looked out into the world and, and again, was trying to find any semblance of a path that I could follow or as a trans man, are there any other people like me doing what I want to do? I simply couldn't see it. And so I could, I didn't believe it was possible for me to be a filmmaker or a storyteller in this way. Um, And so it's been sort of accidental, but at the same time, I don't think anything happens by accident. Yeah. And uh, there's so much to dig into there uh, because I grew up with, a psychology major in my house. Uh, my father worked for Middle, T- Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institute for 30 straight years. So he started at 18 and retired at 48. No one does that. 
And uh, so it was one of those households where you misbehave, but then you get told why you did it. <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of just instead of just punished for the thing you did, you had to hear like a you know a thesis on on what really happened inside that made you uh, want to do that. My guilty pleasure show, by the way, is the challenge on MTV. Oh, so, it's so good! It's, it's so good. It's like it's like quietly one of the longest running best forms of just sort of like indulgent entertainment on TV. Like forget all the heady stuff, just, just dive straight into the drama and the competition and, and you will, you'll love it. So I don't think I've ever said that on the air before or on record, but there it is. It's, it's, <laughs> we're really, we're really being vulnerable and honest in this conversation. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I guess, I, so you started, uh, in psychology at NYU and at Tufts, how has, uh, was majoring in that, majoring in, in psychology, how, how did it help you in your own journey through that, through the transgender process? Well, I mean, you know, it was really during an abnormal psychology class. For those of you who can't see us, I have quotations in ab above it's abnormal. Air quotes. But, but air quotes. Um, but it wasn't that long ago that I was sitting in a classroom and they were going through different issues of gender identity. And I was sitting in the front row and I remember putting a hand over my mouth and just sliding down in my chair and feeling like, oh my God, they're talking about me. And at the time it was called gender identity disorder. That is how far we have come in the past seven, eight years is that it is being transgender is no longer considered, thankfully, a mental disorder. Um, but I was sitting in that position learning about this experience that I had with my gender. But more broadly, psychology has given me a lot of tools and understanding that all of us as people, in the ways that we show up are coming from different experiences that we may or may not have been fully equipped to handle. And so I think throughout my life and how I choose to educate, uh, which is a lot of the work I do at GLAD and outside, is leaning into asking questions, finding out why people believe or see the world or come to things as they do, because usually there's, there's a journey that they've also taken. Um, and so I found that to be really effective in my storytelling. I mean, changing the game, um, you know, could have been for one particular audience, but it was our intention as filmmakers that it be a story and stories for everyone. And that requires, I think, taking a step back and understanding how other people are coming to these stories um, and what is going to move and affect them. So I think it, I mean, I'd be curious to hear, you know, how it's, it sort of plays for me in all different ways and in my personal and professional life. And I'm, I'm grateful for the study of psychology um, and people's minds and behavior, because I think the more we can understand that, um, the better we can navigate how each other is differently dealing with various issues. Yeah, it seems like the perfect thing for you to have studied along with what you minored in. It almost and then and then to bring that to storytelling because it almost feels like that whole liberal arts degree that 
Steve Jobs had and how he was able to bring humanity to tech. And it really changed tech forever because, you know, me growing up with tech was, was, was the computers were very cold and they were very machine-like. And it was, you needed to fit into the rigidity of it, mm. not the other way around. And, and Jobs changed that simply by bringing liberal arts and humanity into, into tech. And I love how you bring that background and you were summa cum laude, so you weren't messing around. You bring that background into 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 storytelling. Uh, you mentioned Glad. Now, I don't want to be assumptive. So, for this audience, which is global, uh, can you tell everybody uh, what Glad is and what is their mission? Just for anyone that doesn't know in the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So, Glad is a nonprofit. LGBTQ media advocacy organization that was founded in 1986, in large part due to defamatory coverage of the AIDS crisis, um, when there were a lot of news stories that were not talking to the people affected by this um, by this epidemic, and instead projecting and reporting in a way that was really um, not reflective of reality and not humanizing to the people who are experiencing it. And so what GLAD does and what our mission is, is to change culture through accurate and authentic LGBTQ storytelling, because we know that who's telling the story, how they're telling it, who, from whose lens, um, affects how we not only perceive ourselves, but perceive other people. And so a lot of my work specifically is centered on helping Hollywood do a better job of telling transgender stories, which as you see in Disclosure, there is a long legacy and history to counter and undo. Um, and so I'm, I'm very proud to work for the organization. I deeply believe in the mission because it's very personal to me. Um, and I've been there now for I say five years off and on. It's like cumulatively about five because even when I left, I was still in the fold and, and right. doing work with my my boss, Nick Adams, who's been there 23 years. Um, so it, you know, it's it's basically the belief that authentic, accurate storytelling can change culture um, because those characters that come into your home or appear on your phone, um, you can relate to, even if you don't know someone in your own life who is gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. That's so important. So it's mentioned in your films that most people just don't know someone that's trans. So when you see a story on the news about a murder, let's say, it's, it's, it's not personal. But when you make a film out of it, now you've humanized that, that individual and, and saw the world through their lens and you can now no longer turn a, a blind eye to stories like that. So that's, that's sort of the, the power of film. And we'll talk about that as we go along in our conversation. Um, what you just displayed is, is just why you're uh, uh, such a wonderful spokesperson for GLAD and, and representative for the transgender community. But I think a big part of that too is, is not just your experience with GLAD, but also because you've lived it yourself, uh, at what age um, were you, or, or um, I, let me see the best way to say this, when you first knew there was like a dissonance between body and mind, uh, how did that manifest itself and, and, and how did you respond to that realization? 
I mean, that's one of those questions that is very personal. And some people feel that they don't like sharing that part of the, about themselves. For me, I feel very comfortable talking about the fact that I, I've known ever since I was very little uh, that the body that I was given was not the same as who I knew myself to be on the inside. And so I was always just considered gender nonconforming. And, um, you know, I, I sort of accepted that at an early age that I was um, always going to be an outsider. And I found a lot of strength in that because again, I grew up in Orange County, California, even gender nonconformity uh, was sort of looked at in a certain way. And I was definitely different. And so there was no hiding that I was different. And so I got to exist outside of expectations already. So, you know, as I came into my gender identity and really truly understanding what it means to be transgender and realizing, oh, this is the experience that I've been having, I've always had such a strong sense of self because I didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. um, there was no one around like me. I was one of the only out people as lesbian at the time in my high school who was different. And again, so there was no hiding. I wasn't backed up against the wall of expectation uh, because I was already living outside of it. And so I have learned, and in the work that I do, while my title says transgender, and that is my experience of my gender is that you know, I was assigned female at birth and I've always known myself to be a boy when I was younger. And, and now a man is a bit of a harsh word, but a guy um, is that really what I what I want to do in my work is. Again, expand people's imaginations of who they can be and not feel confined to whatever societal expectations are imposed and placed on all of us, regardless of whether you're transgender or cisgender, which just means non-transgender, culture will police you for gender nonconformity. If you're a man and you're wearing pink and you decide to put on a dress, the punishment that can happen, especially if you're a person of color, is... I mean, it, it makes it makes it so that you are unsafe and that mm -hmm. you could be violated. And so my goal in the work that I do is showing everyone that if we can be good with ourselves and start to dismiss those cultural societal norms that are largely made up, we're all going to be freer to be ourselves and safer to be ourselves. And that's gonna make all of us better. And this is just my belief and my hypothesis. Um, and I don't even know that I answered your question, but basically I've always been an outsider and it has always been a strength. It's always been something that has made me stronger and I want other people to be able to have that gift for themselves too. Thank you so much for that, I, I, I really, appreciate it. And I know it's, even though you're totally comfortable with, with answering it, it is personal. And I appreciate you answering that for this, this audience. Um, have you been keeping up with the storyline on the shy, uh, the Lena Waith show on, on Showtime? Uh, there's, there's a transgender storyline there. And I was wondering if, if you keep up with it, how do you think she's doing? 
I am behind on that show. I could tell you about all the other shows. I'm, I, I have a lot of catching up to do um, after June, which, as you know, is one of the busiest <laughs> months. Um, so I'll have, we'll have to have a follow-up conversation. You know, I'm down for a round two for sure. Um, and I'm just loving this conversation so far. So I already know I want to do a round two if, you, if you're up for it. Um, we had your films. We talked about Disclosure and we talked about Changing the Game, but they are different films. You know, the zeitgeist is, is ripe for what you were just talking about. Like now is the time to hook your storytelling into a cause or, or into a movement. And these films certainly do that, but they tell a different story. So can you tell the audience sort of the difference between Changing the Game and Disclosure and, and what they're trying to accomplish yeah, absolutely. So Disclosure is the most comprehensive survey of trans representation through history in TV and film. And it is so critical to educating and uneducating about the stereotypes and tropes that people have been led to believe are realities about who transgender people are. And that's largely been just mythologized by Hollywood um, in the portrayals of transgender people, usually as psychopathic serial killers, uh, villains or yeah. victims, almost always in these extreme uh, ways that aren't true to life. And so I think disclosure is so important as a starting out point um, for people to understand not only how culture understands and perceives trans people, but how influential TV and film are because they teach us um, how to behave socially. They teach us how to treat other people. They teach us what, in quotations, romance looks like. Um, and so... I think it is one of the most effective tools for media literacy as much as it is starting to undo what people have learned about who transgender people are, which leads to a lot of the legislative and cultural backlash that we're currently experiencing. A lot of that is coming from people's false mental templates and not personally knowing someone who's transgender. And again, only seeing what those projections are on screen. Um, and the other part of disclosure is everyone who appeared on screen was transgender. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of the crew was transgender. And if there wasn't a transgender person hired in a crew position, there was a transgender person who was mentored in a fellowship program in order to gain those skills to then have opportunity to go and do that next time. And so when we're talking about storytelling and authenticity and whose lens we're looking through, I think that is also one of the effective parts of, of what Disclosure seeks to do. And that's largely because of director Sam Fader and executive producer Laverne Cox being committed to that vision and not compromising on it. On the flip side, yeah. changing the game is very much a story about, you know, three very different young people in their lives. 
um, who are trans and they love sports and their families are very different from different places, from Texas and New Hampshire um, and Connecticut, uh, who have very different personalities. And it's really just an intimate look into their lives outside of the mass media sensationalism that's happened in the past few years around trans people in sports because, you know, and how I came to this film, I think you'll actually find interesting is that, you know, working at GLAAD, I usually have a pretty good idea of what kinds of stories are out there and how we're all being educated mm-hmm. accurately or inaccurately. And when this when the film was proposed and brought to me from the filmmaker Michael Barnett and Claire Tucker, both of whom are allies of the trans community, and they, I got a cold call asking, hey, we're thinking about this film. Like, do you think we should make it? Like, are we the people to make it? Do you think there's space for this? I am always hesitant and skeptical of people outside of a community coming in to tell a story. So I had a lot of questions for them. Um, but I, I, I ended up hearing from Michael that this was coming from a very personal place. Um, someone young in his life, uh, a family friend's daughter, had said that she was starting her transition. And he realized he did not know how to show up and be an ally for this family mm-hmm. um, in a way that he wanted to be there for the rest of their life. And so that led him to, he wasn't setting out to, to make a documentary. He just went out and started looking and researching and came across Mac Begg's story, who was a uh, trans boy wrestler in Texas who was the girls' state champion twice because Texas has a law or policy that required him to participate on the gender of the sex he was assigned at birth. So there was all this controversy broiling um, and just exploding in national news. And Michael just kept coming across this story and asking himself, where is Mac's voice? Like, why are we not hearing from Mac? And so as he was explaining this to me, and I was, again, very hesitant, I also realized I was really hesitant because even as a trans man myself, I had been under this same media umbrella about how we understand who trans people are in sport. And and I started noticing the patterns of why is it that we only hear of trans athletes when they're winning? Mm -hmm. We never hear about them when they're losing because there's not a controversy. And that is actually the majority of what's happening. And so when we set out to really take on this film, it was always the intention for us to give back these stories to the young people who'd had them cruelly taken away and used to exploit and justify exclusion. Um, But ultimately it's a love story. They're love stories between family and community and sport and love across political and ideological bounds. I think that's at the heart of the film and that's what I hope pierced through, but I'd love to hear what you got from it. But it is very much a, you know, it's it's their stories, and we just help tell them. Yeah, uh, the first thing that jumped out to me right away 
was I, I did fear for Mac. <laughs> like I thought, oh, he's in Texas. You know, fuck. Uh, and then the second thing was that I realized that I'd always been filtered. Now, I'm a journalism major, so I want you to know I'm a journalism major uh, and I, right. I minored in marketing. And so I always tell people when you see a story, you have to understand how framing works and how it's such a powerful tool in journalism, especially when it comes to the business model uh, that journalists have to adhere to to keep their job. Uh, that, that, so I don't, I don't blame them necessarily, but it can have unintended outcomes. So the, the question you have to ask yourself is, why am I seeing this? And like, why was this pushed to me? Why did an algorithm put this on the front of my iPad the second I opened it? There's something there and you need to question that part of it. It doesn't have to be nefarious, but you need to question that. And I realized that I had been fed stories only about male to female uh, trans transgender uh, folks winning the trans girls and women. Yeah. Yeah. And because it, when you, when you have a girl uh, that, you know, or when someone is born a girl and then they want to transition to a male and that person is saying, just like in your film, Hey, I want to wrestle against the guys. That's not a story. Just, just like you said, it's not a story if, if, if the trans person isn't winning. It's also not a story if, 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 the, if he's saying, hey, I want to wrestle against the guys. You won't let me. You won't let me. Whereas it feels very unfair and on, its, on the surface and, and salacious to say, well, here's this uh, person who was born a, a, a man or born, born a boy and transitioned to a girl. And now he's uh, kicking everybody's ass and, and track. Or, or she is. Yeah, uh, she, which so, is. So yeah. we hear that story. Absolutely. And, I, and now I question because of the film, why? Why do I always hear it that way? Yeah. And there, when we dig, when we dig and we dig and we really are questioning and asking these questions of ourselves, which we have to do. Um, and they're hard questions, but really underlying these issues are sexism and racism. Mm -hmm. because we're seeing this also play out at the Olympics level. Like, and it's not about trans athletes. It's about whose bodies are celebrated and whose bodies are regulated mm -hmm. and who gets to be and who gets to succeed. And when we look at, and again, our film only tackles youth sports. I had no business talking about professional elite athletics. That is a world outside of my own but we can see it as a microcosm of what's happening at the elite level and at higher levels of athletics in the discrepancies between how women's sports are not supported uh, in, at the same levels that men's are. Mm -hmm. And why is it that, um, why is it that Simone Biles, who is arguably one of the greatest athletes of all time. Absolutely. Has the benchmark continually moved in her own sport because she's too good for it versus someone like Michael Phelps, who naturally produces less lactic acid in his body. And we celebrate him for that. Um, and so it's asking those questions about who, who and why. Um, and what's really frightening that I think a lot of people 
may not understand or realize, because I certainly did it when I was starting on this journey, is that as we come out from the most anti-LGBTQ legislative session in history, on, in recorded history, with the majority of bills saying trans girls and women can't participate with other girls and women, is that, that this not only affects trans girls and women, it affects anyone who's gender non-conforming and happens to maybe be succeeding and or doesn't fit into pre preconceived notions of what it looks like to be a girl or woman if you're too tall, if you are more muscular. It like basically it's inviting violation of certain bodies and that is not happening on boys and men's teams. Right. And the, the the underlying assumption of what that means and how we understand these different issues, um, we can't separate the way that we view physicality of certain people um, versus others. And so it's it's a larger issue. It, and, and the way that it has been boiled and baked down to an, in quotations, unfairness argument there's no evidence to support that. Um, yeah, it, it smacks of, oh, he decided to dress up as a girl so he could win. And what you learn through your films is, I just want to be the person I feel like I am. I'm not playing dress up. Uh, I love this uh, scene in Disclosure where, where you cut away to a film. I'm not your adventure. You know, it's powerful. Uh, you mentioned the Olympics. It, yeah, I mean, now this isn't, you know, it could be sexist and racist, but it's the, the swimmers, the black swimmers have been banned in Tokyo from wearing the culturally appropriate sort of swim wear that covers, you know, sort of bigger hair. Yes. Uh, can you help that your hair is the way, like it's, it's I don't know. Uh, it, no, it absolutely it is absolutely a part of that it's who gets to be and who gets to succeed as who they are and with the swim caps with the sex testing that happens for women athletes and not men i mean there are so many discrepancies in the systematic and institutional sexism that exists that if you compound that with race I mean, black and brown girls and women face it so much worse uh, because their bodies are under a microscope. And so anyway, I'm just glad that we are having these conversations because when we started making this film about four and a half, five years ago, we were not able to have these uncomfortable often conversations that really illuminate issues that are so much more broad and affect all of us in very insidious ways that um, implicate all of us and, and we all really have a stake in the game with, so. Absolutely. Your films can be found on Netflix and Hulu. How were the films funded and are there any tips and or tactics you can share from the filmmaking team uh, to our independent filmmakers that are listening to this podcast, listen, listening to this conversation about raising funds uh, for a film they might want to make? Yes, that's a great question. And I look forward to hearing from all the independent filmmakers who figure out the secret sauce because I am not 
one of those people that uh, is known for fundraising for films. All I can say is that for both Disclosure and Changing the Game, they were both independently funded by the filmmakers. And it was nitty gritty applying for every grant, meeting with any funder, uh, you know, I mean, that's what it is to be an independent filmmaker. You're scrappy and you make something out of nothing. Um, and I, that's what was the case with both of these films. Um, and I think the thing that I can share that hopefully is helpful and valuable outside of the funding is surround yourself with a team of people who believe in the project that you're working on that you would be happy winning and losing with because there's a lot of rejection. There are a lot of no's. There is a lot of going back and asking people to rethink and, and may, well, maybe can we make this work? Because, you know, it's, it's not easy to do this work. Um, but if you are working with a team of people who you trust, who you respect, who has your back, you have theirs, and you will stop at nothing to get what you want made made, that is powerful. And that was the case with both of these films. It was an uphill battle to make them, uh, to find homes for them, to make sure that they're seen out in the world. And um, I credit the teams that I've been a part of for never giving up on uh, on the projects themselves and the people that are who are a part of them. Yeah, it seems the case that every time you go to flip that rock over to see if the secret is underneath it, all you find is someone's grind and hustle. So thank you for that. Uh, speaking of grind and hustle, what's the biggest challenge uh, you've overcome so far as a filmmaker and how did you overcome it? Ooh, uh, so many. Um, I think the biggest is, you know, for changing the game specifically, uh, we premiered in 2019 at Tribeca Film Festival. Um, and then we did a, a little over two years on the festival circuit, um, screening the film anywhere and everywhere we were asked to be. Um, and uh, before... Hulu came on uh, to be our distributor in our home, and they are the most amazing collaborators. It was a grind to find the right place for this film to live and for that place to understand the weight of the stories that we were telling. And, um, you know, we we got up every morning being like, this has to be the day that something changes that we can have, that people understand exactly what stories we have here. And um, that was a struggle because when you believe so fully and heartily in something and the, the world maybe isn't ready yet, or there's, there's all these different um, barriers and obstacles, you can start not believing and for me, I'm an eternal idealist, optimist. <laughs> I will always find the bright side. There were points where I, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, um, but I kept pushing. And I now can look back and say, well, it seems like we were channeling the athletes in the film uh -huh. that you get knocked down, you get back up. Uh, you try and you 
don't succeed, you try again. You do not give up if you believe in something and yourself. And so that is the most, I think, profound um, part of this process I've learned because it was not easy making the film. And I, most things that I've been a part of are not easy, but when, when I've been able to look back and reflect, it shows the grit and the commitment and the strength and the heart that is in people who believe. Um, and so I always say, like, I like to surround myself with, with dreamers who do and doers who dream, because it's not enough to dream. It has to be done. And that's where I come in as a producer. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. It may take longer than, than we expect. It may not look the way we intended, but it will happen. Um, and I think that kind of resilience makes all the difference. Um, that resilience and that hard work make all the difference and a little luck, but um, I've learned a lot through the process and I'm so grateful for the experience. Yeah. The rule of the four D's, we'll call that the rule of the four D's doers that dream dreamers that do. What are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career and, and who did they come from? The best, I'm going to give the best advice that I've gotten and that I'm trying to live best by uh, my grandma, Sheila, who has inspired me in ways that I can't even fully describe. Um, she's She was doing this kind of work before I was alive in the disability rights movement, in integration in schools, growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and she didn't, she had, she didn't say it. She just showed it, um, that you do what needs to be done and you don't make excuses. And that's how she lived her life. I mean, it, it was, it's been remarkable to see someone go through everything that she did and embrace people and meet them. Um, and I think that's where I get a lot of how I approach the world and people in that way of we, we've all gone through hard things. We've all uh, experienced loss mm -hmm. and hardship, um, but we can, we can be part of the healing um, and the goodness. And so doing the work without excuses um, is just something that I watched and I've emulated and it's the best advice I've been given because I, I learned it from watching. Is there anyone else outside of your grandmother, Sheila, that you would like to emulate or, or think is a creative genius and, and would like to sort of uh, hopefully achieve what they achieve in, in the field of creativity and, and activism? That question is huge. I mean, I could, I have a list uh, <laughs> of creatives and creators who I just admire and respect and love their work. And so I don't want to name uh, because I'll inevitably leave out those people on the list. But as I said earlier, the creators who I know who are generous um, in sharing their knowledge, in empowering people who have less experience and giving that, I mean, uh, 
you know, I'll shout out my boss at GLAD, Nick Adams, actually, who has been at GLAD for over 20 years doing the work that I joined him in. And watching him do it, it, it's not often done with an audience. There isn't applause. There isn't accolades. There, there's no external reward for the hard work that he does. And yet he does it and he takes pride in it. And I love that about him because I think it's so easy nowadays um, to want credit for doing good. Yes. Um, And that, you know, unfortunately has been exploited in all different worlds. I mean, now it's sort of sexy to be an advocate and an activist um right and which, is, which is kind of dangerous it's dangerous and it manifests in ways that i think sometimes it can be performative in a way that isn't authentic and the and the change that needs to be created isn't isn't being pursued and so you know i i do just want to give uh my respect and honor to nick who i it's profound the way he does what he does um, and I, he's he's unsung in the work he does because he's not out there trying to to get attention for it. So I, I, the list is long, and I wouldn't be here without the people who believe in me and invest in me. And that is what I'm always trying to do with anyone and everyone, regardless of what they're pursuing. You know, we all have something to offer and contribute. And so any way that I can help somebody go be and do their best. Um, I just, what a gift to be able to support people in that. Thank you for that. That's great. And we both have Nick's that are unsung heroes in our life. Uh, my business partner, Nick, uh, yes. behind the curtain most of the time, uh, pay no attention to him, uh, because he's <laughs> behind the curtain, but he, <laughs> Thank but, he you, Nick. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but he, uh, you know, he puts fuel in the engine. That's for sure. Uh, if I gave you uh, one month, or let me actually flip it. If you had to, uh, if you were approached by an independent filmmaker and they said they had one month to create a inclusive, equitable set, what would be the first three things you'd ask them to take care of to make sure that the set was inclusive? I think think the one major one is that it starts at the top. And so respect, if that is a pillar of, of the kind of set environment you want to create, um, then build towards that, not the other way around. Have that be the guiding principle of all the different steps that you implement that build to that because I think what I often see is a lot of people inputting this and putting that, but like there's no guiding principle about why these different things are being put in there. Um, and so the North star, like what do you want this set to look, be, and feel like to everyone from the director to the facility manager, to the caterer craft services, um, how do you want it to feel mm-hmm. and make it welcoming for the person 
with the least power that steps onto the set. So if you do that, the experience is going to be better for everyone. Um, So that's the main one. And then I would say have people who are part of your production crew who are open to feedback and can absorb that feedback with respect and grace and generosity and know what to do with it. Um, because problems arise on set. Like that is inevitable, but how you respond to it makes all the difference in the world. Um, and so having that line of communication are those people who are on set, um, who are able to be the receivers of criticism, of feedback, of things that need to be addressed and they know how to handle those with sensitivity and care. Um, Those are the main two, the rest fall under that. I mean, I could say something like put names and pronouns on a call sheet, but you know, that doesn't do anything if people don't know why you're putting pronouns on a call sheet. Um, That's what we often see, I think, especially in my work at GLAD. And there's a lot of emphasis on pronouns. I'll tell a quick story. I know we're running out of time, but like, no, please, I'm here as long as you want to be here. Okay. (laughs) Well, you can cut me off. But when, when I was at a film festival and I tell this, my mom knows I tell this story all the time. When I was at a film festival, my mom was wearing a Planned Parenthood button that said, ask me about, about my pronouns. She's a progressive, well-educated, worldly woman. So because her button asked me to ask her, I did. I was like, what are your pronouns? She had no freaking idea what I <laughs> And so I asked, do you use she, her pronouns? Do you see him? Do you use they? Oh, she, she, she. I was like, well, those are your pronouns. And like, but she's wearing this button around, not knowing what it means. And so that's, that's what I mean by it, like having a guiding principle North Star. Don't just do something because that seems like the thing to understand why you're doing it and why it matters and why it's significant. Cause if you do it without knowing that it is just virtue signaling. Um, so that leads back up to the, the first point, have a guiding principle North star about how you want this set to be and look and feel and build up to that and understand the intention behind every little step you're taking to create that. All right. So for those keeping score at home, step one, start at the top. Step two, empower the person with the least amount of power on the team. And step three, know why you're doing what you're doing and do it with intention. That is, uh, those are three beautiful things to to point out. Uh, You've made no secret that you were and are a huge fan of Hillary Clinton and in general, the trans community really supported her. How has this current administration satisfied or dissatisfied you? Are, are they doing a good job? Are they uh, performing as Biden and his team performing as expected, in your opinion? You know, um, I think that under the circumstances, they're doing a pretty good job. Although like, I I will always say, don't hire a dentist to do a veterinarian's job. I don't work in policy or legislation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a politically active person in my personal life, in my work life. I'm politically agnostic. I stay out of that. But I think we are in a better um, circumstance with them uh, as the administration currently, because we are see, seeing progress being made and conversations being had that need to be had. That being said, um, there are there's room for improvement, um, as I think there also is in our political system generally. Um, and, you know, I think part of that, again, going back to, to uh, the last points that you so beautifully summarized, empowering the people with the least power um, is where we need to really be focused in on. And um, that's going to take local and grassroots um, efforts. It it's you know while I said it has to come from the top down, it also has to come from the ground up. Um, and so we're. I think what's been really exciting to see is in local um, communities and the ways that they're showing up for each other and the ways that that is being emulated at the administrative federal level. You mentioned earlier, and I agree with you completely that we've come a really long way in that this movement is succeeding. Uh, what can other minority and disenfranchised groups learn from the success of the trans and LGBTQ movement? That is a big question. I think, I think the fact that we are a community. I mean, LGBTQ is an acronym that represents a lot of diverse identities Mm -hmm. and people's experiences. And we understand that even though our struggles aren't the same, um, that in order to overcome them, we need to understand what's at the root of them. And so much of it is policing, how people love, who people are, how they look. Um, And so there is this common bond and understanding of our intersectional struggles and that we are all in this together. And if we can work together, even though that may look different in certain areas, I mean, I had mentioned earlier about the dentist veterinarian comparison, which I always use, but- You know, again, when someone asks me a question about policy and legislation, I know who to refer that person to because I am not the expert on that. Um, If someone wants to talk about media representation and storytelling, I'm your guy. Mm -hmm. But I think it's about knowing that we all have our role to play and those roles can look different depending on what our expertise and experience is. And that speaks, I think, to authenticity, too. What I'm really excited about seeing is that um, there is a diversity of how advocacy and activism is starting to look. It can look like someone protesting in the street. It can look like someone running for office. It can look like someone telling stories that matter and change culture. It can Mm -hmm. look like being a damn good lesbian dentist It can be, I think, personally, representation of yourself, being your best self, and fighting for what's right and good and 
um, ultimately, as we've been talking about, if we empower the least powerful, we'll create a better society for everyone. Yeah, and that's really what this country was founded on. It was about taking the person, the individual, uh, as as just as important as the other 99% of, of society, that that, the, that that one person's rights were not subservient to the rights of the masses. And the reason why it's so cool to, to have something you believe in and, and to support a, a variety of activism is because the end goal for almost all of them is freedom. And that mm-hmm. is such a cool goal to, to go after. Um, now, I've been blessed enough to have uh, traveled around the world, but I grew up here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, but we are in the Bible Belt. And something that came up in my mind as I'm watching your films is uh, religion and what role it plays in transgender violence or the potential for transgender violence. What What do you... What do we do about this? What do you think the role is, just through your work with GLAD and maybe filmmaking, what do you think your role is, uh, the role is of religion in, in propagating this violence or, or allowing for the potential for it? Since I'm not an expert in this space, my colleague Ross Murray is, who's a Lutheran deacon and who could probably speak much better about this than I, but I think fundamentally we need to look at what religion can be. Mm-hmm. And what most religions um, ask of people who are observant, which is kindness and love. Above all else. Above yeah. <laughs> quite literally everything else. And so um, I can't speak to how religion does or doesn't play into um, the epidemic of violence that is facing trans women of color specifically, because it does. Um, but painting religious people in one broad brushstroke of religion being the reason why this violence is happening, I think undercuts um, something even more fundamental, which is that there is this belief that trans women aren't women mm-hmm. and trans men aren't man- men and non-binary people don't exist. They're making it up. And this comes from what Hollywood has taught us because it is a costume on screen. Um, and so I think Great. getting underneath that even, because even in changing the game, you see that grandma Nancy is a hardcore Southern Baptist and she, yep. Gun-toting. Her grandson, gun-toting, I mean, proud of it. Dallas Sheriff for 25 years. Like, her religion does not prevent her from loving her grandson. Um, And so there's something much deeper than any of our identities or affiliations or associations. And I think it's how we understand each other and how we treat each other. and yeah, something you just said just struck struck me uh, yeah. right right in the heart uh, and in the mind, which is religion uh, shouldn't be you know preventing you from. And I thought, isn't that interesting that that this is an institution that's supposed to exacerbate 
your ability to love someone and support them and accept them. And yet we need to have this conversation around why this, these institutions are, um, you know, maybe perhaps preventing someone from accepting someone else. Yeah. And, and to let go of judgment. I mean, you know, I, it's, Grandma Nancy said something that didn't make it into the film, but it has stuck with me and I shared it every chance I get because I think it cuts even deeper. She said, you don't have to get it. You just have to go with it. And I think if we stopped trying to understand everything and instead just respect that someone's experience is different than ours that would that would be better than if you know i'm never going to walk a mile in your shoes right but i can respect that you've gone through what you've gone through and what you feel and how you've been through it i don't know that aside from trusting and believing and listening and respecting you and i i just it sticks with me that do we have to understand something or someone to respect it? And and I would just say the answer is no, we don't, because that's all religion is. It's something that you do not understand, but you have chosen to go with it with all your heart and mind. And uh, it's a it's a great ana uh, analogy to what we were talking about. Yeah, Alex, you've been so incredible with your knowledge, information, and your time. Uh, just probably one or, or two more questions, um, but uh, we'll wrap it uh, with, with, with the future, with the future for Alex. What's, what's next for Alex in the, in, in the wide world of Alex? What is next for Alex? Is, are, are we doing more films? Um, is there a legacy you want to leave behind? Do you think we'll get to a place where um, inclusion for, for the trans community isn't even an issue? That so many questions baked in there. I'll start from the end. Yes, I do. Uh, because I look at the younger generation in the likes of Sarah and Mac and Andrea and Terry and Gen Z and how they understand themselves and gender. And it just seems so certain to me um, that we're going to live in a freer world um, because people are starting to see that as a possibility. So I'm very confident that's in our future. Whether it's in my lifetime or not, I know it's coming soon. Um, and then for me and what I'm doing next, I mean, I've been working on disclosure and changing the game for four and a half, five years. Uh, and the work is just beginning because once you have a film that goes out into the world, then it's what do you do with it? And so for changing the game, I'm so grateful and proud that we were selected as Frameline's um, Youth in Motion film, meaning that they will be distributing the film freely to 1,400 schools, wow. uh, reaching about 35,000 young people uh, with curriculum attached. So there will be the film as well as dialogue curriculum or uh, conversation curriculum and going to continuing to go to film festivals and community screenings and having these kinds of conversations one-to-one -one with people. 
Um, so that's that's the next year. And then I'm really looking for, I mean, my genre as a filmmaker is romantic comedies and in narrative. I I somehow fell into documentary and I'm so glad to be here. And I'm really <laughs> looking forward to moving into where my heart truly lies, which is in narrative uh, romantic comedies because it is radical uh, to be able to see people be loved and share love and laugh and have joy um, in those stories that we don't often get to see. So that's what I'm looking forward to. We'll see what what happens with that. But um, you know, the journeys with these two films is just beginning. So I'm I'm uh, I'm getting good sleep to to keep going. <laughs> I, I love it. And Nick and I. Uh, helped make a romantic comedy called Another Version of You. You can watch that on iTunes or Amazon, but I would love to get your opinion of it. Uh, so if I you get a chance to watch, watch it, uh, let me know what you think. Um, it's called Another Version of You. Another Version of You. And I, I would, I like to tell people I guarantee it'll make you smile. Uh, it's it's a lovely romantic comedy, and it's a little bit different than uh, the typical one. So. Cannot wait to get your feedback on that. Um, tell everybody where, where they can find you on, on social media, where they can reach out to you on social media, where they can find you on the Internet. And as a bonus, if there are any resource websites you'd like to give so we can start being part of your world a little bit more and, and being, like you said earlier, an ally. Thank you so much, Chris, for the conversation. And we really got into it. And I just appreciate your creative work and, and what you're doing to support independent filmmakers, um, you know, in, in being uh, scrappy as we can by sharing our knowledge and resources and experiences. Um, so you, everyone can find me on all social media platforms with the handle Anderfin, A-N-D-E-R, F-I-N-N, fun fact, my full name is Alexander Finn Schmitters. So Ander Finn is the last of my first and my middle. I've oh. never shared that before. So it's a little fun fact. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and then for good resources to be an ally, um, you know, if, if you're just getting started with your education, GLAD's resources are really great for understanding basic terminology and definitions um, so that when you do encounter someone who is trans or non-binary, um, you just have the right language to approach them and know uh, the appropriate questions to ask or not ask, um, and that will lead you to even more resources. So glad.org slash trans or transgender um, will lead you down a good path of resources. That is incredible. And we'll, we'll end on this. You visited Nashville, my hometown, in 2016. Fun fact for you, I was at the Beyonce concert you went to. So, no. so funny how life works. We may have sat side by side. It was an incredible concert. Oh, my gosh. But the question for you is, did you go all the way at Hattie B's? And did you pick up a pair of cowboy boots while you were in town? I went to town at Hattie B's and I'm waiting for my next trip to Nashville to pick up my boots. Uh, Nashville is one of my favorite places. I have family that's, that's from Tennessee. So, uh, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to, uh, redo, redo, um, and get some lemonade. 
Yeah, we'll have to do it uh, for sure. Uh, you come to town, you let me know, and I'll tell you everywhere to go, give you a key to the city, and hopefully we can hang out as well. Maybe maybe B will be in town, maybe she won't, uh, but there, uh, there's concerts here every, every day. If we can't get Beyonce, we'll have somebody who sings all of our covers, and we'll just we'll just go to that show. Perfect, I love it. Beautiful. Alex, you are incredible. Thank you so, so much for everything you're doing. Thank you so much for the conversation. And uh, I would wish you luck, but I know you don't need it. Looking forward to round two. Thank you so much, Chris. Same with me and, and keep up the great work. Really appreciate it. We'll do our best, brother. Thank you so much. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute contributions start at only five dollars monthly you can follow us on instagram and twitter at underscore bonsai creative and on facebook by searching for bonsai creative you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me chris on twitter at flaming your heart that's f-l-a-m-e-i-n-u-r-h-e-a-r-t and of course If you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.